0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Igor Duvin research professor at CNRS, which is France's National Center for Scientific Research. His book, The Art of Abduction, is just out from the MIT Press. How should we form new beliefs? In particular, what inferential strategies are epistemically justified for forming new beliefs? Nowadays, the dominant theory is Bayesianism, whereby we ought to reason in accordance with Bayes' rule, based in the axioms of probability theory. In The Art of Abduction, Duven defends the alternative inference to the best explanation, or abduction, in which explanatory considerations play an essential, an essential role in determining what we should come to believe. Duven lays out and responds to trad- traditional arguments against abduction and shows how abduction can be a better reasoning strategy than Bayesianism in many contexts. He also considers how abduction fares in the context of social epistemology, and he provides an answer to the traditional problem of skepticism about the ex- existence of an external world using abduction. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Igor Duven. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Yeah, thank you, Karen, for having me. Um, I'm looking forward to our conversation about your new book, The Art of Abduction. Um, but before we start the actual discussion of the contents, maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to become a philosopher or cognitive scientist, and then um, how your interests led to this book
1: yeah um, so I, I started studying philosophy in 1990 um, until the, I was a bit older already I was 27 at the time until then I had tried to become a professional musician a pianist um, which didn't work out and I had been interested in philosophy um, uh, at high school and so then I thought okay I'm, you know now that music did, uh, didn't work out I uh, I, I will uh, philosophy and I like that so much that I um, uh, I stayed and um, I um, I uh, did my PhD at the University of Leuven so I studied at the University of Utrecht did my PhD at the University of Leuven um, got my PhD in uh, 96 and um, it was uh, so I, uh, I had been interested uh, from the start in analytic philosophy which was only at the time was um uh, was uh, a very small field in uh, in the Netherlands and in and, uh, and Belgium. It's gotten a bit uh, better now. Um, um, and so um, uh, already then, so when as a student, I remember that I um, so you read then works by Richard Boyd and Erna McMullen, which which were about abduction and which defended it, but it, also at the time it wasn't seen as very Necessary to, um, to 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 defend this mode of reasoning. So in which so abduction, I'm understanding this as uh, as inference to the best explanation. I mean, different are uh, different interpretations of of uh, of the term. But nowadays it's it's mostly understood uh, as inference to the best explanation. So when you when you consider um, so how much confidence should I put into a theory? And maybe you also look at, um, is this theory a, a good explanation of the evidence that I have? And that's going to influence, in, you know, in some degree uh, and in some sense, um, uh, how, um, how confident you are that that, that theory, that hypothesis, whatever, um, that is true. Um, and so as I said, at the, at the time when I was a student, this was sort of beginning of the 1990s. This was um, uh, considered to be well, basically common sense, right? I mean, it, it, it looked obvious. There was some defense needed, but but not a lot. Um, and, and so we found it in the in the papers uh, by Richard Boyd and uh, Ernest Mullen that we read as students. But then at the same time, and I I came this to know um, this literature, to know uh, I came to know this literature only a couple of years later when I started as a PhD student. Um, so there were uh, some people who had started uh, uh, criticizing abduction, um, mainly people who had been attracted to, to Bayesianism, which was at the time still uh, very new. And uh, um, uh, so it was a very small group of people back then who advocated Bayesianism. So Bayesianism is basically the idea that uh, probability theory and, and Bayes' theorem, so particular, Rule for um, you know how to change your subjective probabilities, your degrees of belief when you receive new information. Um, so uh, this view was not compatible with any interesting version of uh, of abduction, and it was mainly Bas uh, van who um, who had who was publishing at the time about um, uh, so how, how how Bayesianism was actually the The right epistemology, Uh, and and, and indeed, so so he had in his book uh, *Laws and Symmetry*, which appeared in uh, eighty-nine, he had a whole chapter devoted to arguing why abduction or inference to the best explanation, uh, why that was, you know, not a rational way of um, of forming new beliefs. And so I I found it fascinating. I mean, on the one hand, uh, as I said when I was an undergraduate. Uh, abduction had seemed so uh, so natural to me and uh, uh, and obvious, and it seemed to me that when I uh, when I re- reflected on how I had arrived at uh, at, at certain conclusions, then uh, uh, my impression was I mean you never know this for sure because we don't have this this um, uh, this this let's say this. this um, guaranteed access to to how we reason, but at least it seemed to me that very often I relied on these explanatory considerations that I took into account where something uh, was a good explanation, and that 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 influenced me in, uh, in in forming my beliefs. So that that was what I thought as an undergraduate, and then there were these arguments which I read um, uh, actually right when I started as a as a graduate student in uh, in '93. That was so one of the first books I read then was Frassen's Laws and Symmetry, um, and there were these very compelling arguments actually um, uh, against abduction. And so, that, so this, this, this tension I found that fascinating from from the start. So on the one hand, uh, a rule that seemed very natural, and then and then these arguments which also seemed inescapable. So that. Um, so it, and, and, and suggesting that actually um, um, I and other people had been forming beliefs in, in an uh, irrational manner. Um, and so in my, in my PhD thesis, I was so it was more broadly concerned with um, scientific realism. So the idea that you know the, we, we we can be justified in believing our best scientific theories, maybe they are not completely true, but we 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 can believe that they are they are getting closer and closer to the truth and and basically what they say about things that we cannot observe uh, by the naked eye that still they they exist or most of them exist or um, uh, so th- that was a, something that Frasen, uh, at least on one interpretation of his work <coughs> denied um, or let's say on a more I think on a on a on a better interpretation so he was basically arguing that. Um, not that that we cannot believe that these uh, uh, unobservable entities exist, but that you can be a perfectly good scientist without ever committing to to the existence of unobservable processes or entities. That's just not part of of science. So science doesn't commit you to that. Um, um, but in any case, so I, I I wanted to defend scientific realism and um, uh, against his again, so basically uh, Bus was the main uh, uh, opponent in my PhD thesis. Um, and so part of, part of that I think there were two chapters in my PhD thesis devoted to interest the best explanation to abduction. Um, and so that, that is where I started. so, so once, once I had defended my PhD thesis, thesis I uh, published a couple of papers and on abduction. Um, but then also, I, um, uh, I mean, I was, I was interested in, in other things as well. And I, I then got my first position as an assistant professor at the University of Utrecht again. And uh, uh, so my, my job was to teach epistemology. Uh, I didn't have, at the time, much of a background in epistemology. But I mean, that is how things worked at the time in Holland. I mean, um, there was a certain requirement for people to teach courses and um, uh, I had to teach these these courses, and so I got uh, I, I became more of an epistemologist than uh, than a philosopher of science. Um, but from time to time, I I, um, uh, I came back to uh, abduction, and when I had an idea, I worked on it, um, and then only so I, I got more seriously interested um, uh, in it when. Well, a little bit by coincidence I had uh, started, so I you know, I, I, I was an assistant professor in Utrecht and then I uh, got an uh, associate professorship in uh, Rotterdam at Erasmus University and then I got a full professorship at the University of Leuven and uh, when I was in Leuven uh, by coincidence I started collaborating with um, psychologists so, so the psychology department is right next to the philosophy department in Leuven and uh, uh, I came to know uh, a couple of the people working there uh, and I so I started doing empirical work myself well, first you know for the first couple of years uh, relying on the uh, on the experimental skills of my colleagues in the psychology department and then later on I um, I, I, I got a bit of confidence and I, I was confident enough to to run uh, some experiments on, on my own or again with New people I had come to know know in the psychology uh, community, um, and so th- this was uh, so the first time that I could actually do some empirical work on uh, on abduction. So, I mean, were were people really changing their degrees of belief um, influenced by um, by by uh, explanatory considerations? There was some work in in psychology on explanation but so Tanya Lombroso and her group um, had had done some great work on that uh, and and are still sometimes working on that um, th- there was a lot of work on um, how explanation um, somehow factored into changing our uh, beliefs or, or changing our degrees of belief and um, so that that was what I uh, okay. started working on yeah um, uh, yeah. Okay. You feel free to interrupt me.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you've covered you've covered quite a bit of territory. One is the you know that that is of course covered in the in the book itself. Uh, the you know the the tension between you know what might be thought of I think as the dominant theory nowadays uh, Bayesianism for 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 belief updating. So. So there's a, you know, kind of a defense of what came before. Um, There's the whole issue of, you know, realism and anti-realism, which you mentioned with Van Frossen. And then, you know, which is, and then the issue of what way we ought, perhaps, to, to reason versus what might be more natural to us. Um, um, so there's, uh, so those, those sort of three issues kind of, um, are dealt with and, uh, you know, throughout the book, I should say. So, um, so let's, let's just focus on, you know, first of all, I mean, you know, abduction, you've mentioned the idea that, it, it, that, um, it's a form of explanatory uh, reasoning where, where somehow, uh, the goodness, the explanatory goodness of, a, uh a potential belief or, or hypothesis is in favor of believing it <laughs> um, as opposed to uh, a bayesian you know following Bayes's rule whereby you know given whatever priors you get certain evidence and it you know raises or lowers the probabilities and then you just go with the one that has the 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 higher probability um and explanation at least at least um, explicitly has no, has no explicit role in in that. Okay. So, so um, maybe we should go back to, I mean, you know, Von Frasen, as you said, his, uh, you know, defense of anti-realism also included an attack on abduction on best explanation. So maybe it might be a good idea to start with that, um, you know the way he kind of frames it, and then how you respond to the problem that he raises for abduction. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, it, so I mean, he um, uh, he uses an, an argument that had been developed by uh, by David Lewis, um, uh, which which was a di- which is now called the dynamic Dutch book argument. So the uh, Dutch Book arguments had been used uh, uh, already by the Finetti and um, Ramsey uh, about 100 years ago, when they um, um, uh, proposed their version of, uh, let's say, what what we now would call Bayesianism. That's not how they call it. Um, and so the idea was, uh, so the idea of a Dutch Book defense uh, was, so so their claim was uh, to you know to be rational our degrees of belief need to conform to the probability axioms. Uh, And our argument for it was, um, look, if you don't do that, then someone can offer a set of bets to you. So let's say we bet on whether tomorrow it's going to rain, or so, and then I offer offer you some other bets. And if if my degrees of belief don't conform to the probability um, uh, axioms, then that person can offer a set of bets which will guarantee that I will lose money um, which is a bit different from just an ordinary bet where you can lose money but I mean that's you know that's just in the nature of betting of course I um, we can bet on whether it's going to rain tomorrow and that, you know whatever, whatever is the case I, I can lose that money or I can can win some but um, they said is of course irrational if already you can now figure out that by Let's say by by uh, agreeing to these bets, uh, you are going to lose money, whatever is going to happen, uh, and that seems right, of course. And, um, and uh, but then it, it, those Dutch book arguments, so they are now called static Dutch book arguments. Uh, so they are meant to justify the probability axioms, but they don't do anything to justify this uh, this dynamic principle of belief change. So as I said, you know when you, when you receive new information. Uh, then, well, typically you will uh, change your degrees of belief, maybe just slightly. Um, uh, uh, and uh, there is a rule for that um, in, in Bayesianism, so which is called Bayes' rule, uh, which basically says that your, you know, your your new probabilities should should be your previous uh, conditional probabilities, so conditional on that new information that you received. But these, as I said, these static Dutch book arguments that uh, Ramsey and De Finetti had developed, they did do nothing for, um, f- for that dynamic principle. And then David Lewis was the first to think of uh, a new type of Dutch book argument, so the dynamic Dutch book argument, which involved again, uh, bets. So someone proposes bets to you, but uh, at different points in time. So he proposes some bets, uh, then Maybe you get some new information, and then the, the bookie uh, proposes some um, some some new bets. Uh, and then David Lewis uh, argued that look, unless you um, you follow base rule, so this uh, this rule that I just described, um, then such a bookie can can propose bets to you, which again will guarantee a financial loss. Um, and so again, that, that's and then if that is so, then it seems indeed that you know not changing your degrees of beliefs so or not updating, as the, as it's called in jargon, your degrees of belief by means of uh, base rule. Uh, yeah, that if, if you don't do that, then it seems you're irrational because of course it's very stupid or to to use a rule where you know that um, uh, s- someone can take advantage uh, of you financially. Um, by, well, basically just by exploiting the knowledge that you're, you're, you're someone who, uh, who uses some different rule for, um, for changing your degrees of um, uh, belief um, so David Lewis didn't publish that, uh, that argument so it was discussed he presented it to, uh, to students in, uh, in a seminar in, uh, in, uh, in Princeton one of the students was uh, Paul Teller who published it uh, attributing the, the argument, of course, to, uh, to David Lewis, and uh, so what Bas van does, he has just a very nice presentation of um, uh, that argument, uh, very effectively uh, presented. And as I said, indeed, I mean, when I read it, I, I thought, well, this is basically um, inescapable, right? I mean, what what can you do then? You know, give up any hope for um, abduction or any non-bayesian rule. Um, now, so that uh, so even in the Bayesian community, um, people started to raise concerns about these uh, Dutch book arguments in general, because it, they said, "Well, actually, they're about um, losing money, and that's uh, that has to do with practical rationality. But this is about what you know what we are debating is actually the rationality of our beliefs and belief changes." Um, and so we need a new kind of argument. So, so even Bayesians became doubtful about um, Dutch book arguments, the dynamic Dutch book argument, the, uh, the static Dutch book arguments. And they um, replaced them. So they started with a paper published in ninety eight by, uh, by Jim Joyce. Um, and then the, the new type of argument that they came to, uh, to like um, are generally called inaccuracy minimization arguments. Uh, so these arguments are meant to be explicitly epistemic, uh, in that they uh, uh, try to show that if you don't you stick to, to the probability axioms and if you don't use Bayes rule, then your degrees of belief are not as accurate as they could have been had you been a you know a true Bayesian. So if you if you're degrees of belief had been probabilities, had been in, in accordance with the probability axioms, and if you had changed your degrees of belief um, uh, via a base rule. Um, now, so th- th- there are a couple of things. First of all, these are formal arguments, and uh, as is very often the case with, with formal arguments, you can, um, you know, they, they make assumptions which if you think hard about them, uh, can be challenged because they they can be so um, so far removed from uh, what real people how real people think or the kind of things that real people are are able to do that uh, one starts wondering what what the relevance is. I mean, you can always say, well, this is a kind of idealization. I'm proposing an ideal, and we should try to uh, to achieve it, even if we know uh, that we. Um, that we uh, that we will never really succeed in in achieving that. Um, but so w- what if you cannot even say uh, uh, to someone who would like to achieve that ideal? Well, maybe if if you want to move in the direction of uh, of that ideal, then take these and these and these um, steps. I mean, there are some idealizations involved, which are which are so. Um, so unrealistic that um, uh, you really wonder what is the connection to, to how real people reason. Um, so that is that is one concern you can have about them. Uh, then there are other strange tricks that you can. Um, so I have so one part of one chapter um, uh, in the book um, uh, shows actually how if you uh, suppose you you use a, a non an updating. Well, then, if you adopt also certain further decision-theoretic principles, then you can still um, uh, protect yourself against these bookies, which uh, which will try to to uh, to take advantage of you. And so, then the claim is that that actually you should not focus on on these single principles, so principle for belief change, um, uh, but you should you should focus on packages of principles, and that you can have package, you can have, have a a package of principles. Which together uh, so allow you to to change your degrees of belief in a non-bayesian way, and it's just because you have these other principles also on board, so decision-theoretic principles, that you that you still can defend yourself, so to speak, against um, uh, the attacks of um, of the, the, the Dutch bookies.
0: Right. So let me just um, so uh yeah one of the one of the arguments that you make uh in the book uh against bayes not really ag- i shouldn't say against bayesian models of reasoning but against the idea that all of our you know the what what you call bayesian imperialism right the idea that you know all good reasoning uh updating should be bayesian um it, and that if, if it looks like there are explanatory considerations, um, they're, they're in some way secondary, right. Um, um, but your, your response is essentially that, um, there are many contexts in which abduction, you know, inference to the best explanation is actually more, uh, you know, you call it ecologically rational. I, I think of it as, you know, sort of, on the model of ecological validity, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, a more, uh, a more, it's not just a more natural way to reason. Um, it's that it is actually more justified in many natural contexts. And could you, could you explain, you know, or maybe even give examples of, uh, situations where abduction beats the Bayesian?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, um, so the, so as I, as I just said these um, these these arguments in favor of base rule these were very technical arguments and you can also you can always argue about these technical assumptions uh, they make um, I thought actually the the, the more the, the better response is well better I mean you can you, you can do both but so for me the more convincing uh, response is that Suppose we grant these arguments, so suppose uh, we say, yeah, you know, the dynamic Dutch book argument is fine and the inaccuracy uh, minimization argument is fine, at least insofar as they show that if you use um, a non-Bayesian rule, then there can be some cost attached to that. And then the further question that, that somehow Bayesians have always avoided to ask is, well, Suppose there is a cost attached to that in itself that that's not telling at all because there might at the same time be a, a, a compensating advantage you know because it's it's quite normal in ordinary life we pay for things and we're happy to do that as long as we get something in return for for that so why why not here you know and and the ideal is in, indeed that um, if Maybe so not not across the board. that is not not what I want to claim. But if you look at specific context, um, then we can uh, we can compare base rule, for instance, with uh, various versions of abduction. I mean one of the one of the themes of the book is also that uh, of course, a criticism has been that abduction is it's just a slogan, you know, it's uh, just a claim that explanatory considerations, are confirmation theoretically relevant or something like that. It's very, very vague. Um, and then my response is that um, uh, so people who like abduction should uh, accept that. So it's indeed abduction is a kind of slogan, but it has to be articulated differently in different contexts. Um, and so then, so what I do in the book is I, um, uh, I look at, at different contexts and I, I look at so if we evaluate now different rules, so we we look at base rule, but we also have um, different versions of uh, of abduction running basically in the same in the same context, and we evaluate them along two different dimensions, which arguably are in in our lives very important. So we we care about accuracy. So indeed we want our beliefs to be accurate, but we also care about speed. You know we so it's. It, you know, if, if, if you're given a choice between, look, here, you have a, an update rule. And if you use that rule, then maybe in 20 years, you will have very accurate beliefs. But uh, in, the, in the interim, maybe in, in five years, your, your beliefs may still be very inaccurate. Or if the alternative is that, well, here you have a rule and your beliefs will be fairly accurate uh, relatively soon, even though maybe it will take much longer to, to become very, very accurate. So these are the two dimensions of, of comparisons, uh, of comparison that I uh, uh, I use to uh, uh, to look at base rule uh, versus different versions of uh, of abduction, and then you can uh, then you can you can look at uh, at contexts like um, well in the book I have a chapter where I, where I look at a context which I try to to uh, describe as realistic as possible. So when you have an ICU, so an intensive care unit, uh, and patients are being brought in at a regular basis and have to be evaluated, <clears throat> You so doctors want to be uh, informed about uh, you know what is wrong with the patient uh, as, as quickly as possible. But of course, they also have to be um, accurate in what they believe about the patient, because there are They're planning some interventions, and uh, they they want these to be the correct, the right interventions, which do um, uh, as much as possible to uh, to make sure the the patient will survive. But so there, you have this tension between speed and accuracy. Um, And then what what you can uh, what you can show is that in in some context, you um, you can see that that uh, these versions of abduction they clearly beat um, uh, base rule and it's just because so these these um, explanatory conservations they they give a a boost so to speak you know they 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 make you um, attach a a bit more weight to certain um, uh, hypotheses Uh, and, and base rule is more cautious now, that can sometimes be a good idea to be, to be cautious. Uh, and for instance, it can happen if you're in, an, in a context in which you're more likely to receive misleading evidence, which can sometimes happen, you can't exclude that. Then it's actually better to have a cautious rule because if you have a, um, if you have a rule which picks up very quickly, um, let's say, the lead in, in the data, but if this lead is really actually misleading you, then that's, that's not so good. Uh, and as I said, that 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 can happen in reality. Um, but uh, as I said, I mean, you, you, it's it's difficult to to tell uh, in advance, and it's certainly not uh, uh, the idea, is certainly not to claim that. Uh, look, we have one rule which does best in each and every uh, context, which is basically what what Bayesians have always been uh, been doing. They have been advertising their rule as a as a universal rule. You know, you should. You should stick to, to Bayes' rule uh, in each and every context. Uh, and so that's what I call, uh, as you said, I mean, that's, so that, that's Bayesian imperialism, uh, and I think that's wrong. Um, uh, and so I, here I, I was um, greatly helped by, uh, by my work with, uh, with people from psychology, where this notion of ecological rationality was already popular, so this was not something I, um, I came up with, not at all. Um, uh, and I think they, they were right. They, they looked very much at uh, how people reasoned in different contexts, and how uh, actually um, the you know the context is important for whether it's better to use these principles or those principles. Um, and that's that maybe that's a bit. The picture is, is messier than. Um, that maybe this this very nice formal model that patients offer, but it's also more real, so to so to speak. I mean, because well, life is messy, you know, and um, and the world is messy. So, so I, I think you should you should be you should be flexible in in real life. And uh, it would be great if you could give someone the advice: look, here's one rule. Always stick to that rule, and you will be fine. You will be rational. Um, but in reality, it's probably uh, you should expect that. Uh, um, you have to be sensitive to how contexts can, uh, can, can differ from, from each other and how you may, uh,
0: you, you may have
1: to develop the skill to pick different tools, cognitive tools, for different contexts. Um, right.
0: So the normativity then uh, is itself relative to context. We can't just say one one ought to reason, you know, according to this rule or something like that, but that given, you know, it's all conditional, given these various considerations, uh you 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 are better off or you ought to reason this particular way again given a particular goal right yeah. um
1: yeah I mean you, if, if you want to say general things you can always do that you can you can say well you you know you ought to pick the right tools for the right context but that is a very very general claim um and it's not yeah. what so I mean I should, I should say I mean it's um, um so you, you in, in every context you you, it, it also requires some kind of talent. Um, uh, it's not just rule following. You know, you have to you have to develop skills to, uh, as I said, to to figure out sometimes very quickly uh, which rule is the best to use in a, in
0: a particular mm-hmm. context. So, so your answer, so Van Frossen, um you know, who who we mentioned before. I mean, he he kind of articulates the, you know, the problem of. Uh, you know, using explanatory considerations, um, you know, IBE invents to the best explanation. What's well, the best of the ones that you consider? And those could all be bad. And so maybe you take the best of the, of the few that you consider, but they're all pretty bad. And so that's, you know, that, there's certainly no, no obvious justification for reasoning that way. Um, and I, I take it your response is, well... Uh, yes. <laughs> you don't. Uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but my 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 understanding is you're you're you concede the issue, but uh, but you don't concede it as a general principle that using uh, that it was would that be correct?
1: Well, I mean, so so uh, so this 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 argument of the. Uh, the band lot. I mean, it was directed at a, at a version of, of inference to the best explanation, which indeed is, is completely different from what, what, what I'm defending in the, in the book. So there, this, this, so, and it was um, the, the textbook version, certainly at the time when, uh, when Van Vrasen wrote his book, so where you, where you would just say, look, you consider a number of uh, different hypotheses or theories, uh, and you have your evidence. And then you believe the one, you believe the, the hypothesis or theory that best explains your evidence. And in a sense, von Frasen was was right uh, to say, well, that is, that makes little sense because what if, you know, just you are just considering a couple of hypotheses and, and the truth is not among them, uh, and then you're 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 accepting the best of a bad lot. But that's so this textbook version of uh, of um, abduction. You, you, I think you no longer find that in the literature. Uh, and so there are many responses to that. I mean, you, uh, so the first response that people came up with was that you could say, um, uh, look, what is wrong with this textbook version is that on the one hand, you have um, a relative verdict. So you say, I have a collection of hypotheses. Um, sure, I don't, know, I don't know whether the truth is among them. I, these are just the hypotheses that I've been able to think of. Um, but maybe if I think about this problem for five more years, I will come up with many more hypotheses, many more possible explanations. Um, uh, and so then, so, the, so then your judgment: Look, here I have. This is the best explanation. So that's a, that is the best explanation relative to the to the collection of explanations that you have been able to think of so far. Uh, and then the so this is a relative verdict. And then the conclusion you want to draw is an absolute verdict. You say, it's true. You know, it's just, it's true. It's not true relative to something. It's it's just true. Um, and so, the, I mean, that, that textbook version, Dere von Fraser was right. That was not a good idea to formulate um, uh, abduction in that way. And so one, one thing that people said was, make the, uh, make the conclusion also um, relative. So you can say, well, this this hypothesis is the best explanation of this collection of hypotheses that I have been able to think of. And then make the conclusion, uh, well, this hypothesis is closer to the truth than any of the other hypotheses that I have been able to think of so far. So that's only one way uh, around it. Now, I think, I mean, so... Uh, to, so in, in discussing this, there is a little bit... Uh, the problem that Van Vrasen wrote is in, in 89, and I think everything he said then was uh, fair at the time. But he, he, as far as I know, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I uh, I know also his later work, I, I don't think he ever came back to uh, inference to the best explanation or abduction. So I don't know what he would now say about these Dutch book arguments uh, in light of, you know, already the, the criticism from the Bayesian community. Um yeah um, he would certainly admit that by now there are many uh, better uh, articulations of this idea of abduction than, um, than, than when he criticized it. Um, so I think the, the, the bad luck uh, argument, I think that has been that, what, that can be circumvented in many ways, many many different ways. And certainly that so the, the way I think of abduction, well then you, you, you don't have to deal even with that with with that argument. But there are other people who um, who solve it in their own way? So um, I think I, I I haven't seen much discussion of that that argument lately. And I think it's for the reason I just mentioned.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, so one of the um, I mean. One of the things that you get into, um, which struck me as quite novel, was uh, abduction from a social epistemology perspective. So, you know, for the most part, I mean, we, we have been talking and taking for granted, you know, sort of traditional individualistic um, epistemology where it's like, how should I update my beliefs. Right. Um, and, and I take whatever considerations and, and go from there. Um, uh, could you say a bit about how you see abduction, you know, when we're not talking about the individual reasoning so much as, you know, either individual reasoning in the context, in a social context, or even, uh, social cognition, you know, by oh, by yeah. groups.
1: Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, ha- I have one uh, one chapter in which I I look at abduction from the perspective of social epistemology, um, because as you said, I mean, uh, epistemology has mostly been this um, purely individualistic epistemology. Um, uh, so starting well, but in any case, so the the Let's say the, the image associated with this is Descartes, who uh, who is, you know, thinking just from his first person perspective about what he can know and what he, what 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 he can believe for sure, um, and he doesn't take any other people um, into account. Um, and so, social epistemologists started to wonder: Well, may this not make a, a big difference once we start thinking about? It's, it, it, it's not just the individual thinker. We don't discover the world on our own. We, are, we rely on uh, on our parents and our friends and our teachers, and, and we have discussions with many people. And all of that contributes to what we what we believe, and also arguably to uh, to what we know. Um, and uh, I think there were some very good arguments. So Elton Goldman uh, did a lot of uh, uh, groundbreaking work in in this area. Um, and so, they, from then on, people have, uh, or many epistemologists in any case, have been uh, taking this social perspective uh, much more seriously. Um, for a while, uh, this this was still uh, so we it it was as if we moved from an epistemology of one person um, uh, to an epistemology of two, per, uh, two two persons. You know, where so a lot was about uh, testimony, um, and so true we didn't just. Consider the the isolated thinker, but now it was one thinker in in relation to to another uh, thinker, um, and then uh, so at the same time in a, in a somewhat different field, I, mean, um, I think, uh, pioneered also by by social scientists, um, people started working on on models which included. Actually, many agents could be really many uh, agents. So, where you had computation models um, in which agents interacted with each other, and in which um, maybe a consensus could emerge or a polarization could emerge, um, many things could happen in ways which are which were not predictable. So, even if um, even if you look at communities which form beliefs in a very simple way or degrees of belief in a very very straightforward way. Uh, then still, if you also um, add a social component, so I'm, you know, I'm I i I'm discovering the world maybe partly on my own. I, I receive evidence from my senses, but also I talk to you. Uh, you tell me things. Uh, I change my uh, beliefs also on that basis. Um, and the same for you, and, but then we interact with, again, with other people. And um, so this... This 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 web of interactions uh, it becomes very uh, co- it can become very complex and it can become impossible to predict what is what is going to happen to the to the to the beliefs of the of the members and will they come to agree on something or um, you know maybe if they come to agree on something very quickly may that actually be detrimental to to the epistemic state of the whole community you know really seen as a community. So if it's a community of scientists, may, may they come to, uh, uh, to to adopt some some false theories because they they are influenced way too much by uh, by each other, and there were some people with very very mistaken beliefs, and they somehow infected. They were able to very quickly infect the whole uh, community. Um, and again, that is not. Uh, predictable if you just even if the as I said if the, if the, if the ways in which all these agents individually change their um, beliefs or degrees of belief and in which they respond to to interactions with others, even if these rules are very simple, then if there are just enough interactions then what comes out of it you can't figure it out. you have to run computer simulations. Um, and then sometimes the, the results can be very surprising, and then sometimes you can uh, you can explain why you get that result, and sometimes you can't, or that can be difficult in any case. Um, and um, so, the, so, so, so the question I asked was: um, so there was there was some work on uh, on this, but but none in relation to uh, abduction. So what if uh, these agents individually? use some form of abduction to to, uh, to change their degrees of belief? Or what if you have a kind of a mixed community, you know, some change their degrees of belief by means of uh, a form of abduction, and others use base rule. Uh, And what if they are in in competition with each other for, um, you know, some scarce commodities or just for a survival? Um, So one of the things I do in, in the book, I run a uh, an evolutionary algorithm, which, uh, which has been developed about 20 years ago or so. Um, I think now exactly 20 years ago. Um, and it, it mimics, uh, in a way, evolution. So there is variation and selection. So people can change the ways in which they uh, change their degrees of belief, can change various epistemic principles. Can change the ways in which they interact with with others, or can change the the weight they give to the opinions of others. Um, so there are many variables. Um, and such an algorithm, I mean, on one end, it, it mimics an evolutionary process, and so already that can give you some insights. But also, it's uh, used even in engineering. It's used as an as an optimization algorithm. So find the best ways for a community to. You know, do, So if, if you consider the question, so given that these agents all interact and maybe have some common goal of, uh, of, of finding out the truth about the world, um, uh, so how should they individually uh, change their degrees of belief in order to make sure that the community as a whole um, uh, converges to the truth as fast as possible. Now, I mean, that that's just one question you can,
0: uh, right. uh, well,
1: you, you can
0: ask. Right. Well, I mean, so if you start one of these simulations and different people who are located in a different position in the network uh, have different explanatory considerations.
1: Yeah. And um, so well, there are also, also some Bayesians involved.
0: Uh, yeah um so uh what are, what are the outcomes uh do, does the abduct i mean it's not just the abductive process itself over base or not uh, but it's also which of the explanatory considerations uh ends up taking precedence um depending on where or who, who is the person or what what's the node that has which explanatory consideration Because I mean, it seems like a lots of epistemic communities can all arrive at the same uh, at the same explan- explanation which which may not even be the best of the bad lot. I mean <laughs> yeah. so how, how does? Does abduction really fare? Maybe it fares better than the Bayesian, uh, but does it fare better in the sense of it's reliably generating uh, the best explanation out of whatever different explanations are present in the population?
1: yeah, Yeah, so the dimensions of comparison were again, again, speed and accuracy um so so how can i get this community to converge to the to the truth or to get to, to get it as close to the truth as possible as fast as possible um that that let's say if, if you're a so this community could could be a big lab or something like that and of course they have this goal they they want to they want to be the first to publish results on whatever it is you know some the cause of a disease or a new treatment or i, I don't know what um, but they also know that there are other labs which are, um, which also would like to publish that, which are working on, uh, maybe on, on, on other treatments. And, um, um, and so another the question you can ask is, how should I organize this lab? Let, let's say, uh, suppose I'm a, a kind of social engineer, so I can tell people how they should interact with each other, how they should change their degrees of belief, um, so if they judge explanations. Uh, you know what kind of weight they should give to to different factors, which may determine whether some something is a good explanation. And then in these, so in these um, um, in these computer simulations, of course, uh, you know you can do whatever you want because the computer does the work for you basically. So that so look at look at all different ways in which you uh, you can combine uh, these elements, and then you're just going to see which which comes out on top. Um, and then it turns out that um, actually uh, forms of abduction do really well then and do much better than, uh, than, than base rule. And they do better in this social setting than in an individual setting. For the reason I, um, you know, five minutes ago, I um, I talked about this possibility that you get misleading evidence and that actually then um, uh, base rule would be better because it's more cautious and so you don't follow quickly lead in the lead in the evidence but if, the, if if this lead is actually going to lead you astray, that um, that is unfortunate and uh, it may take longer than to get back you know uh, to, to, to correct your your degrees of belief but in the social setting what helps is that um, so maybe I get some misleading evidence but if we all you know, we all do our own research and so we all get get our own evidence. Um, then maybe I get misleading evidence, but I'm, that's partly corrected by the fact that I talk to you and you at this moment don't, you, you get evidence which is not misleading. Or, um, and so this, this um, uh, uh, makes sure that I don't stray too far from, you know, from, from the path which will eventually take me to, um, uh, uh, to the truth.
0: Okay, um, so one of the so in the final chapter, or, or you know, towards the end of the book, anyway, you um, you also give an uh, abduction type response to you know arguments uh, for skepticism about the external world, right? Um, uh, so can you can you kind of get us? Talk us through that that response um, to the skeptic.
1: Yeah, yeah. So what what I so the way I thought of the book was um, as so it consists of four parts. You don't find that in the in the. I mean, I, I, I don't mark mark the parts. But so there was one part in which I explained what what abduction is, and then there was a part in which I um, uh, I I look at. Um, Arguments against abduction and maybe why they don't work, um, and I look. And then there was a part in which I um, try to justify abduction, so I have a positive argument. And then there was a part, and so that's the part where I um, uh, look at skepticism, where I want to show. So one, once we we have abduction and we feel confident in using it, so how how can it help us, and how can it also help um, philosophers, and. Um, um, so early on I, I know that abduction has been used uh, in the context of um, uh, under determination arguments uh, a lot so that so and when I came to know abduction and so when, when we read this literature in the philosophy of science so by Richard Boyd and, and those people they used it um, in the context of underdetermination determination arguments and so there the, so the, the idea always was that, um, um, so we have now a number of theories that we get evidence. Maybe our evidence allows us to eliminate quite a number of theories. Um, and we and we are left now with maybe five theories, but they're all compatible with um, with the evidence that we have. Now, maybe they're not, not all compatible with the, any evidence that we might ever obtain. So maybe in a year or so, we will be able to eliminate uh, some more theories. But then there can also be theories which are, as philosophers of science say, uh, which can be um, empirically equivalent. So that means they, are, they, they make about the evidence that we may get, about things that we can observe, they make basically exactly the same uh, claims. And um, and if they are incompatible theories, then the the worry was that uh, maybe we, we will never arrive at the truth because the evidence will never allow us to, to say, well, th- this theory is true and yours are false because th- the evidence is compatible um, with, with all, the the- all those theories. And then uh, Boyd and other people said, well, that is where um, inference with the best explanation or abduction comes in because it may still be the case that one of these theories is a better explanation of the evidence. So true, you know, all the, other, all the theories, let's say, um, you know, imply uh, the evidence or, or whatever whichever evidence way we, we may have they they make the same predictions about uh, future evidence um, but still one of them may be a better explanation and that may be a reason to say well we trust this one and we reject the errors or at least we put uh, not as much confidence in uh, in the other theories and the, the skepticism debate although it's not usually presented in uh, in terms of underdetermination is actually an underdetermination argument. So if you look at these um, hypotheses like you know, we might be brains in a vat, or we might be dreaming or um, you know, there are many skeptical um, scenarios um, that basically all, so they, they present a, a case of underdetermination. So what they say is um, look, all the evidence we, we have, all the you know, you know all that we can can, can agree on that can serve as evidence in this uh, debate. So maybe let's say it's sensory impressions, or you know, um, that's that's compatible with yes, it's compatible with our being embodied, uh, you know, brain, so to speak, and we we, we we live in the external world. But it's also compatible with our being uh, brains in a vat and being connected to uh, some supercomputer, which is able to uh, make it seem to us as if uh, as if we are. You know, bodies moving around in, uh, in in space, but no, we are not. We are just brains. So that, that is a case of, of underdetermination. And um, so there were a number of authors, uh, Jonathan Fogel and, and also Bertrand Russell, early on, who um, who who had used um, uh, inference to the best explanation to uh, to argue in, in that context for. The real world hypothesis, as it is sometimes called. So, so no, we are not brains in a fan Because, so why not? Well, because it's is actually a much better explanation of the, the 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 evidence we have, even if we agree that this is just sensory, some sensory impressions, data Im- input, whatever, whatever we call it. Um, um, and so th- they thought that that was enough. Um, now with 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 the doubts that had had arisen about um, abduction, I think that response no longer worked so well. I mean, once you take on board abduction, then maybe you can uh, you can agree with John Fogel and with um, uh, Russell. Um, I mean, you would still have to agree that uh, it is the best explanation that we that we are embodied. Um, brain so to speak you know brains in the body and certainly uh, so not not everybody would uh, uh, would agree so I thought this response was uh, was too quick there was a there was another response a very different type of response uh, against uh, the skeptic which came from uh, GE Moore. and so he said well I uh, you know the so the skeptic uh, wants to to convince me that you know I, I cannot know that I have uh, that I have hands at all, you know, because I may not even be, uh, I may not have a body at all. Uh, but look, he, you know, here is my hand, you know, I, I can see it. And then he, he said, uh, so maybe the, the, the skeptic is not going to accept that. Uh, he said, but for me, this is just a basic fact. I can see my hand, this is all I need. Now I may not be able to convince the skeptic, but why should I? You know, Why, why should that be my goal? Uh, if I can justify from my own standpoint, that I'm not a brain in a vat. That's enough. You know, I have I have my position. I have um, justified my position in in a way which is satisfactory to me, even if it doesn't convince the skeptic. Um, but that that should not necessarily be our goal. You know, you can think well. Uh, we can think of ourselves in philosophy as as politicians, and we should uh, convince everybody of our standpoint. Or we can uh, uh, have a more modest aim and think. If the positions I hold are um, consistent from my uh, my standpoint, then that's that's fine. Uh, now I thought, yes, that's uh, uh, it's, it's it's quite it's quite an ingenious response. But it's also so as I said, just as I just as doubts have um, uh, have uh, risen about uh, abduction. I mean, there are also legitimate doubts one can have. About the reliability of sensory perception, because we we sometimes um, uh, are misled by uh, by what we perceive. Now, uh, what I what I try to do in that uh, final chapter is um, uh, develop a response to the skeptic, which grants a lot to the skeptic, uh, and which says, "Well, what if I'm neutral? You know, I I, um, uh, I, I look at the possibility that I." receive really evidence from the, the external world and i look at the possibility that maybe i you know i i, I have to remain completely uh, agnostic about the nature of this evidence and i can just say that it well it seems to me that that the sun is shining but i'm not going beyond that um, and this is so the same neutrality with regard to abduction so what if i what if i grant these people who who have doubts about abduction you know, can I have? You know, I'm 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 open to to both possibilities. So that abduction is reliable, and that that, that it should not be trusted. Um, and then it's it's like I I I pretend to to consult two experts. You know, one is one is completely uh, uh, non-skeptical about uh, sensory uh, evidence, and the other is skeptical, and one is skeptical skeptical. Skeptical about um, uh, uh, the reliability of abduction, and the error does rely on on abduction. And then what I show is how basically they they support each other. You know, you can you can have evidence, so you you can receive evidence, even if you're neutral. You don't you don't take more standpoints with, with respect to that evidence. Still, that evidence can make you a bit more certain about, a bit more certain, you don't have to become fully certain, but it can make you a bit more certain about abduction. So it can give some support to the reliability of abduction. Then once you have some confidence in abduction, not not at all uh, necessary to have full confidence, you have some confidence in abduction, that may help you to become a bit more confident in sensory perception. And that, that goes on and on for a while. So it's like you get... Some, you know, they, 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 it's not that you, you pull yourself by your bootstraps out of, um, uh, out of the mud, but it's like they pull each other out of the mud by their bootstraps. Um, and that, that's how the, how the argument um, uh, works.
0: Good, good. Um, okay, well, I think that's a good place to end, and we are, we are out of time. Um, uh, so. Uh what I was, I'd like to end with a question about what you're working on now. Is, are you continuing in, in, the, in the field of you know abduction and abduction defenses, or are you working on something else?
1: Um, yeah, so at the moment I'm not working on abduction. I, I may well want to uh, um, return to abduction in, in the future. Probably I will. But at the moment I'm, I'm working on analogical reasoning with uh, a number of friends from uh, um, psychology uh, and some cognitive scientists. Um, and so it's a, n- not so different from uh, abduction. So it's, a, I mean, it's, it's also a form of non-deductive reasoning where you take similarity relations um, into account, not explanatory um, factors, but similarity relations. Uh, I think it's also uh, interesting. So there is some philosophical work on it, not a lot. Kar- Karna did some interesting work. There's also some psychological work on it, but also not a lot. Uh, I mean, it depends on you know. There are, so similarity can can play many roles in reasoning, and some have been uh, well studied, but there are also some which uh, which which haven't been so well studied, and um, we're working on that. Um, and then I so I also uh, am interested in, uh, in conditional reasoning. Uh, I'm working on that again with uh, together with uh, psychologists. And I'm working on um, uh, uh, agent-based approaches, not not in the context of uh, of anything to do with abduction, but um, I mean this is a this is a a field in its own right. Uh, So I just told you about it and how I how I uh, used it uh, in my book uh, in order to so in a defense of abduction. Uh, But I'm I'm collaborating with uh, Heiner Hexelmann, who's one of the um, uh, main developers of a certain way of uh, of um, well opinion dynamics, collective um, collective opinion dynamics, so we, uh, and, and we are uh, developing this more and studying uh, um, various belief forming mechanisms.
0: Good. Okay. Um, well, I look forward to seeing uh, seeing some of that work in the future. Um, but in the meantime, we are, we are out of time. And I just want to say thank you again, Igor Duvin for joining us in new books of philosophy. It's been a, it's been, I had, I enjoyed your book very much, starting with the very first sentence, (laughs) which was a joke. Um, and, uh, I hope other readers will also enjoy it as well. So thank you again.
1: Thank you, Gary. Was, All right. I enjoyed this conversation uh, a lot. Okay.
0: Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Igor Duvin, research professor at France's National Center for Scientific Research, or CNRS. Um, we've been talking about his new book, The Art of Abduction, which is just out from the MIT press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy, I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.